listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff, we are going to kick off officially our series on value creation. And we have a wonderful guest with us today, Michelle Swan. Michelle is both a listener, which is really good to announce, but more importantly, she is a partner at Tercera. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Maybe the best place to start is to just give a quick intro. Tell us a little bit about Tercera. Tell us a little bit about your role there. And then we're going to jump right into this topic of value creation. Yeah, sounds good. So Tercera is a growth equity firm. We're an investment company that specializes in IT professional services. So how I became a listener, I've been in the professional services space for a really long time. My role, I'm a partner at the firm, so I help look for the investments that we make, help grow those investments. I also am our in-house marketer and our marketing team. (laughs) It's a pretty small team. But we started about two years ago and we're a $225 million fund and we've made four investments so far. And the reason why it's called Tercera is because that's Spanish for third. And we believe in this whole concept around the third wave of the cloud, which is that the cloud is different than it has been over the last, you know, two or three decades. It looks different, requires different services partners. And so we want to invest in those. I want to get into that, but before we do, what's a growth equity firm? Describe that to us because that's a sort of a unique space that Tercera sort of occupies, and I want listeners to understand what that means. Yeah, and it's funny. I feel like investors always use these different words and vernacular and don't define them, but there's a pretty like broad spectrum. Yeah, marketers. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a pretty broad spectrum of investors out there, everything from kind of seed angel investors, which are those, you know, the ones that write the... checks, million dollar checks for companies, all the way through to venture capitalists, which are probably the ones you've heard the most about, like Sequoia, Benchmark. And those typically invest in companies, again, kind of earlier in their life cycle. And then there's private equity companies, which are a little bit more focused on the mature companies, larger spaces, write bigger checks, more focused probably on profits than market disruption. Growth equity sits like right in the middle of the kind of venture capital private equity world. And we focus on growth companies. So typically companies that have been around for a little while found their product market fit or market fit in services case. And then we invest in those companies to help them reach the next level. So to grow from 10 million to 50 million, 50 million to 100 million. And in most cases, there's an exit. What kind of exit? It depends. Usually it's an acquisition of some sort. Sometimes it's a strategic buyer just kind of grow the company and run it for profit. Sometimes it's in some cases, which it didn't used to be the case, but IPO is an option. I mean, there's a lot of services, especially technology services companies that have recently IPO'd in the last few years. And if you look at their valuations, they're, they're pretty good. So I don't know if that used to be as much of an option as it is now. Cool. All right. Valuations. That's the word we want to lean into today, isn't it? A little bit. Or value, rather. I guess valuation is a little different. But before we go there, I keep punting us down the road here. Let's talk about this third wave of the cloud. Is that the way you frame it? Yep. Third wave of the cloud. Just tell us a little bit about that, kind of how Tercera sees that and why it's maybe relevant to your work, I guess. And and, and, because I think it does lead us into some of the, the value creation stuff. Sure. A lot of the partners at Tercera come from a company called Aperio, which we say was kind of born in the cloud's first wave. That's when companies like Salesforce were born. You know, Google really got into the cloud. Some of these, I would say, bigger SaaS applications 
We were one of Salesforce's first services partners. I mean, cloud was just a term at that point in time, right? Like it's, I think it was still mostly SaaS at that point. And it just changed the way IT was run. You know, over that decade, companies got bigger. It became more of a an option for enterprise companies. Then some of the bigger players got into it, like Google and Amazon, and even some of the bigger players right now, like Oracle finally admitted that cloud might actually be a thing. Same thing with SAP, (laughs) Microsoft, some of these other companies. And then it started to become more of the infrastructure side of the house where people were actually building on the cloud. And that kind of kicked off what we call the second wave. It was more about not necessarily departmental productivity, but more around just efficiency, kind of lowering costs, doing things differently. And then, you know, it's interesting, each one of those waves was kind of kicked off by an event. So I would say kind of the first wave was around almost 9-11. It was right around that time frame when it first came to pass, cloud. And then the second wave really was kicked off with the whole financial crisis. People started to have to really button down and figure out how to do things at a lower cost. And then this third wave was honestly kicked off, I think, by the pandemic. It was already going in that direction, but it forced companies to look at things in a different way, to secure their IT in a different way, to put together different customer experiences employee experiences with a bunch of different cloud applications versus just these kind of single behemoth stacks that they used to have. It's a little bit of a different world we live in. I I think it used to be that people had maybe one or two SaaS applications. And I read somewhere that the average company has 110 different SaaS applications, which requires a whole different set of services partners to manage all that and to put it together and use it in in a way that makes sense. That was probably a lot. Sorry. I get a little bit into it. No, it was awesome. I think it's really interesting to think kind of in these macro terms. And also, I love how you tied it to sort of significant events and how that it, you know, either influenced or accelerated technology change or technology adoption. And then, of course, to your point, you know, and certain the sort of the, the premise of Tercera, the types of channel partners and IT services firms that are needed as a result of that. So let's let's lean into that. Let's lean into into value here. So, so I guess how does Tercera define value? How do you, how do you define value as a firm when you're talking with partners, principals, leaders of IT services firms? What are you talking about maybe in, in utter simplicity? When it, as it relates to value. Yeah, I think it's before I answer how we value it, because I think, you know, we have a very specific perspective in what we value. We focus on high growth, highly innovative IT professional services firms. So we have a pretty narrow view of the world in terms of how we value those companies. But when it comes to value, I think, I mean, not unlike most things, it's kind of, it, it depends on who you're talking to and how they define value. So, you know, there's that saying that beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And in this case, for most companies, the beholder is the people who lead the firm, right? They're the people who own it, who run it, whether it's an individual founder or a team of managing partners. And so they might see value differently than we see value. But when it comes to what we as a growth investor see, It's kind of four things. It's what market you're in. Is it in an established, more mature, slower growing market? Or is it in a super fast growing, highly innovative market? So think kind of Oracle versus Salesforce, just to kind of give you an example. The second thing is revenue. How big are you? Are you a 
$1 million company or are you a $100 million services firm? Investors and acquirers, which is often the exit path that a lot of the companies we work with are looking for, they value scale more. They can get more out of that. And the companies that get acquired, there is a sweet spot for that, which we can talk about if you're interested. The third one and probably the biggest one for us is growth rate. So are you growing 5% every year or are you growing 50% every year? And are you growing consistently or is it super lumpy, which can be services companies and why I think a lot of investors have avoided services companies. And that's part of what the value we bring is like, how do you grow gracefully over time? And then the fourth one is just is profits, right? Like what are your margins? How efficiently do you run the business? How efficiently do you deliver your projects? And then how much are you making on the back end? What's your profit margin? All right. Super cool. Okay. So those are the objective forms of value from Tercera's perspective, but you actually mentioned, you said, let's talk about subjective forms of value and the recognition that value is in the eye of the beholder. So, and that frequently what firm leadership, firm ownership values may not be in lockstep with what a external funding source in this case might value. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what have you heard from different partners you talk to or, or different firms that you talk to? What are some of the things that, that show up in those conversations? Yeah. And I mean, I, I'll also turn it back to you because you probably talk to almost as many services founders and leaders as I do. But I think, you know, everybody has a different value system. Some founders value life work balance. You know, they got tired of being on the road. They want to be home with their families. They want a lifestyle business that's going to give them a enough of an income or sometimes even a great income, but that's kind of what they value. Sometimes it's, I like solving super tough problems. They want to just be like in the mix. They want to be relevant at all times. They want to be at the forefront of a lot of these markets. And if they make money doing it, great, but it's really like the problem solving that gets them out of bed. I think the, the third one would be their own personal wealth. I think, you know, everybody wants to make enough money, but some people want to create kind of generational wealth for themselves. Um, And that means building, growing, selling, working super hard to grow this business. And then sometimes, you know, you get those servant leaders, which we love that want to create wealth for others too, whether that's the shareholders of the company, the employees inside the company. And it's usually like a mix of all of those things, but there's one that is usually kind of front and center for most founders. I don't know. Is that what you guys see? I believe that pretty much sums them up. Yeah, I don't. I don't see as many as the first one of the lifestyle, but those are smaller types of of firms. But I grew up in a family business. My father was very much like that. Didn't want to take on more headaches and simplified his life. So I think it makes sense. The ones that really interest me are the ones that have that attribute. I call it stewardship that are building something bigger than themselves for the long term. I would think most investors probably aren't as interested in those as some of the others that are growing more quickly and looking for some kind of liquidity event. That's where it depends on the investor, to be honest. I mean, because you've got services, businesses are highly profitable. And so, I mean, especially if they're really well run, they're at a certain scale. And so they can be good investments. I mean, look at some of the big public ones, right? Like EPAM and Globant. And I mean, they're trading at some ridiculous values, probably not as much as they were (laughs) 
six months ago. <laughs> 10 minutes ago? Yeah, 10 minutes ago. Exactly. <laughs> well, in most cases, they're, you know, they're, most investors, at least in the space that we're in, are looking for some kind of an outcome too. And that could be just trading up to another another private equity company down the road that's going to use it for profits. It could be, like I said, an IPO, could be an acquisition. So we tend to see mostly those founders who, and it's funny, everybody's at a different life cycle. Like some people have been doing it for three years and they just, they see the market and they know that there's a moment in time that they've got to grab before somebody else grabs it for them or instead of them. And then there's people who are tired. You know, they've been doing this for, 17, 18 years, and they're, they've got all of their wealth tied up in this business. They want to leave it for somebody else, but they want out. And that's a a perfect reason to get an investor because you can de-risk yourself and you can take some chips off the table. Sometimes people want to stay, sometimes they want to go. We tend to be very founder focused where we invest in the founders. And so we want to invest in companies that are, the founder is going to stick around for a while. Like they want to be the steward of the business for the near or long-term. They're not looking for the walk away. Yeah. This notion of the founder that's sort of building something without a clear end in mind, and they have a perception of what it's worth, and then they show up and then you tell them, well, no, it's not as valuable as you think it is. And to your point, they have all their chips tied up in this one thing. Do you see a lot of that? Is that a common thing or is that a rare thing in the IT services space for you? Oh, that is a very common thing, especially the last year. And it's hard to tell someone that their baby is, I mean, not that their baby is ugly, right? But it's it, it might not be as pretty as they think it is. Yeah. And I think that's where talking, even if you're not looking to raise money right away, talking to people who have been through that process or even having early conversations with investors, even if you're not going to take an investment for a while is helpful because they'll give you market comps. They'll tell you what other companies like yourself are valued at and they'll tell you what you need to maybe do a little bit better work on. So I'll give you an example. Like one of the common things that we get from companies is customer mix. So they, I mean, they've built a great business. In most cases, it's very profitable. The margins are looking good. They've kind of established a well-run efficient business, but maybe they have huge customer concentration. 70% of their revenue might be one client or a subcontract for a vendor or something like that's that's always going to be valued less that revenue by investors because it's a risk for them if that client goes away you're going to have to rebuild that whole part of the business and it should scare the founder to be honest but some founders don't really think about it revenue is revenue and and they don't think about the mix so getting that kind of advice from investors i think is is helpful you're listening to rattle and pedal Divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Are owners and founders shocked when you tell them that? Is that something that surprises them? That that, that, that customer concentration issue is going to devalue what they've built? I think that most founders know that it's a problem. Yeah. I don't think they realize 
how much of a risk it's seen by outside investors. So the scale of it probably is a little bit surprising. And then a lot of, I mean, a lot of times these founders are just, you know, they're working 80 hours a week and they're just running the business and they're working with customers and they're building great teams. And they just, they haven't done the analysis on the customer mix, the services mix, what's their delivery mix in our case, right? Like how much of their delivery is maybe offshore, nearshore for lower cost labor versus, you know, really expensive onshore resources. They just don't think about it that way sometimes. Some do. Some are really sophisticated on that. Some just love solving problems and building businesses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. In the realm of subjective value, I, th- I think it's sort of tucked un- under wealth for others, but I'm going to create another one in there and throw it in there. And I'm just going to call it sort of like building a family. And, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we, we've seen some firm leaders that are very paternal, that feel like they're sort of building this, this very large extended family of people. And it's not even necessarily not about wealth, but it's about this collegial sense that they're creating a group of people that they like to work with and trying to extend that as long and as far as they can. And so I, I kind of would lump that in those, those subjective forms of, of value, but it's sort of ostensibly well for others, but, but I think it's sort of it's sort of the same idea. It's a little bit of a different take on it. But Michelle, I want to go back to when we kicked yeah. off and you were talking about the three waves of the cloud and how firms have created value in each one of those kind of market circumstances and how you've seen that evolved and how you look at value creation that's driving the financials. Cool. I think the, and I'll put it back on the characteristics of a lot of services firms, right? Because I think that is the successful ones in the different waves focus in different areas. So I'll I'll give you, like in the first wave, a big part of it was just helping companies implement a SaaS application. So I'll just use Salesforce since that was where our history is from. You know, in the early days, it was some salespeople bought Salesforce They figured out that maybe a good portion of their sales team might actually be using Salesforce and they wanted to buy it for their department, but they needed some help implementing it and getting all the data in the right place and kind of rolling it out the right way. And that's how value was created, was that kind of centralized, just get people up and running. And then services firms left. It was kind of one and done projects. And then the second wave, it's expanding that across an organization. So we we had clients at Aperio where... It's seven different instances of Salesforce. And like, how do you put all of those things together? Like that's some value is bringing them together and thinking about what's your data structure and what's your architecture and, and, and all of that. But then there's also firms that built on these, you know, infrastructure as a service platform. So AWS and Google Cloud, and they were building applications on these. And that takes a specific skill set. I think in the third wave, a big piece of it is around data security, data governance. What's your architecture for this whole thing? When you've got 110 different applications, how do they work together? How do you start to bring these different things together? It does seem like in this third wave, a lot more things are being componentized. People are, they're just smarter when it comes to how to use the cloud and they know that they want to take a piecemeal approach. Like I'll use commerce as an example on that. We're doing a lot of work in that kind of headless composable commerce space right now. And it used to be you'd buy this big e-commerce stack, a Shopify or something like that. You'd put it in and then help them figure out how to use it. 
And now it's so complicated with omni-channel sales and you know different brands and international that finding a partner who can help you put all those pieces together and help you manage it over time. So managed services is a huge part of it, should be a huge part of every service firm right now because customers, one can't hire the labor internally. They need help from talented people externally and they, you know, these things change so fast now. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I think the the value evolves as the technology in this case evolves. I love your example real real quick because because you're you're talking about managed services, but I, I want to differentiate real quickly, not managed services providers in the classical sense of the local MSP that's going mm-hmm. to manage your Office 365 instance. Not saying that's not an important partner, but I think you're you're differentiating that from someone who's helping you manage maybe a more complicated set of applications or integrations that, that are, are much more unique based on their channel strategy, I think is kind of, yeah, am I yeah. right? It, okay. Very much so. And I mean, it's, it's the re which is great for the customer. It's great for the services company because yeah. it's recurring revenue and it's a little bit more consistent across the, it's not as lumpy for companies, but it also keeps you in with the customer so they don't have to go out and get another partner down the road as things evolve. So if you already know their systems and they need help doing something else, you're there. So we're seeing it, it didn't used to be the services company had to have that kind of ongoing programmatic help. But I think I think it's more important than it used to be. I think what's so critical in the way you describe that is the markets just keep evolving. The customer needs keep evolving. Therefore you know, the firms need to keep evolving and how that gets managed, or I should say the ones that manage that well are the ones I would think investors are going to want to invest in because they de-risk, if you will, the market impacts, if you will, as the technology evolves. For sure. I mean, the other thing too, is we've talked a lot about Customers and investors, but there's also employees too. I think company, I mean, employees want to work for companies that are growing, that are relevant, that are doing cool stuff. Employees don't want to work at companies that it's the, you're a widget, right? Like you're, it's the same thing over and over again, and you're working on old technology. And so I think that that's why a lot of these companies have to invest in some of these new areas partly to keep attracting the great talent that is going to help them grow down the road. And so we talk about kind of subjective value too, but one of the biggest things we look for, which it's not a hard number necessarily, but it's just the culture of a company. And I know you guys talk about that a lot on the podcast, but it's, you know, what kind of culture is the CEO building at the company? And that has a huge impact on attrition, on utilization, on retention on, you know, what kind of talent you can bring in. And then diversity is becoming a way bigger issue than I think it used to be because I think investors and everybody is kind of woken up to the fact that if everybody looks the same, everybody thinks the same, everybody has the same background, then it's sometimes it's hard to stay relevant because you're not open to different ideas. And so I think investors even now value diversity a lot more than they used to. What are some of the other attributes you look for in in a culture that you're like, yes, I like that? I think it's art and science. And this is why it it was hard the last two years to invest in companies that you couldn't go visit 
And it's hard when companies don't have an office. A good portion of the companies we invest in don't. They have a remote workforce and they might have like one office, but not everybody goes there, especially these days. And so it's kind of hard to get a feel for the culture if you can't be there in person and feel it. So honestly, it's it's talking to the leadership team because culture is driven by the leadership team. And you can get a feel. The biggest things that we look for in founders is, are they coachable? Do they listen or do they talk the whole time? Because if they're talking the whole time and they're not asking any questions or listening, you can only imagine what it's like to work for them. <laughs> it's kind of like working with Jason. <laughs> no, I'm a very good listener. I don't know, you know, <laughs> you never noticed that. I have a question about culture. So that, you know, you think about the other things you described as object- of objective measures that you look for, market, growth, revenue, profit. Do you have a, like a rubric that you use to try to, you know, compartmentalize culture to say, well, this firm has this type of culture and that means this, you know, some way to kind of measure, you know, that, that assessment of culture. It's hard to measure culture, but I think there's some leading indicators for sure. One thing we always look at, what are the glass door scores? I mean, you take yep. it with a grain mm-hmm. of salt because, you know, people like to get on there. It's like Yelp. Everybody likes to get on glass door and complain, but you can get a sense from are most of them negative or What's the CEO approval rating? We ask for in our diligence process, we want um, employee engagement scores. We want to see, do they even measure employee NPS? If they don't ask, if their employees are happy, it's kind of a sign. In the diligence process, are they interested in creating an employee option pool or do they want to keep all the options for themselves? Hmm. Like That's a red flag because companies want to work or employees want to work for leaders who value them. And so if, if all the wealth is being accumulated by one person, it's usually a sign of culture. Is that the Bezos effect? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And then, you know, and then I think you just, you look at things like attrition, right? Like if they have off the charts attrition, which yeah, it's been tough the last year. So I think most companies are higher than they have been, but the ones who have low attrition, especially throughout turbulent times, like we have today, Great. During COVID, did they lay everybody off or did they actually use the PPP loan to keep them instead of pocketing it? You can see that stuff in the numbers. Yeah. It's interesting. One of our former guests, a successful IT services firm, I talked to him about attrition and he said their attrition had doubled during the pandemic. I won't name his name, obviously. He said, but the interesting thing about it is he's like, you know, well, we started from a place where our attrition was about half of the industry average. He's like, in our industry, and our attrition is still half the industry average. So I feel pretty good about where we are. He's like, even though it doubled, you know, it's like, it is what it is. And he felt good about what they'd been able to accomplish. So, all right, well, we have to shift towards a closing here. And and before we do, actually, I want to ask you one one last question we haven't touched on before we run out of time. You, and, you, and you hinted to it earlier. You said, you know, when and why firms raise capital. I think it's worth just before we lose you, talk about that a little bit. You know, why do firms raise capital and when do you see them raising capital? Oh, there's lots of reasons, but I would, I mean, to simplify it is probably two. Either you're growing too fast or you're not growing fast enough. Again, I have the growth equity hat on, so keep that in mind, my value system. But I think the, the biggest reason if you're growing too fast, you can't hire fast enough. You need to, your, your cash flow, you, you start to hit that point where you're, you need to hire ahead if you're actually going to be able to deliver on all the things that you booked. You need to create economies of scale. So you need to invest in your SGNA more than you ever have before. Maybe your partners are wanting to bring you 
into sales opportunities more and you need more sales engineers, things like that. And then the not growing fast enough, that is, you know, maybe you're in a slower growing space, but you see the opportunity in a different tangential space and you need to pivot a little bit there and you need to invest in that area. Sometimes it's through M&A. That's a popular one. Most of the, a lot of the companies come to us because they want to acquire companies. And I think that's where we're probably a little different than most private equity, growth equity companies is we're just not believers in the roll up, you know, like we're just going to take six different services companies and shove them together and create scale and sell it off. Like it just, that's not how great companies are created. And so being thoughtful about how you get into new markets, new regions, new segments through M&A, that's one of the reasons why people invest or seek investment too. So, and that's why I think just to kind of bring it back to the defining value, it's really important for the leadership team, whether it's, you know, single founder, co-founders, team of managing partners to just be aligned on what they want the outcome to be, what they see as value and why they want an investment too, because it's partner. You're, it's like a marriage. We're going to be yeah. around for a long time. <laughs> yeah. No, I like it a lot. Michelle, if somebody is listening and wants to get a hold of you, where can they find you? So our website is Tercera, T-E-R-C-E-R-A, for those who don't speak Spanish, (laughs) .io. Or they can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn to Michelle Swan. I have to ask this. Who should not contact you? (laughs) Who who do you not want calling? Other than Jeff. CEOs, managing partners, do not call me. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great question. I would say if you have a lifestyle business, like having an investor means you have a boss, you know, like sometimes you're, we're minority shareholders. Sometimes we're majority. It all depends on what you want out of it. But I would say if you're looking to like have just a consistent grow, you know, business that you're making a good living at, but you don't want to grow this thing, like we're going to push you towards a growth path. Um, It's just, how we're wired. I would say to us specifically, I I mean, there's lots of other investors out there that will invest in smaller companies, but we tend to need at least 10 million in revenue for us to be interested only because we're going to end up with too much of your company if if it's smaller. And, and you, most founders we want that we work with, they want to retain as much of their company as they can. So we tend to be in that kind of 10 to 40 million in revenue range. And then we're we're 100% focused on IT professional services. So if you don't play in that kind of cloud space, third wave, probably not the best fit. Well, that was very clear. Good sense of ideal client, right, Jeff? <laughs> I would say so. so. So great place to end. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Great dialogue. Lots of interesting stuff to, to talk about or, or we talked about, I think, today. And I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.